On today's episode of Locked Up With History, we'll be stepping back to November 1854 for the first and only public execution in Geelong. Unlike John Goldman from our last episode, this time, two men would lose their lives. Stay tuned. Warning. This podcast contains discussions of some potentially distressing topics. Listeners, please be advised. with us for true and tall tales unsurpassed with stories from Victoria's dark colonial past spirits executions ghosts murders and ghouls these are the stories they don't teach you at school all these twisted tales of mystique and mystery coming to you now on locked up with history everyone and welcome back to Locked Up With History episode 5. My name is Deb Robinson and on today's episode we're going to be talking about the only public execution in Geelong. John Gunn and George Roberts would meet their ultimate fate in front of a crowd of 2,000 people at Gallows Flat in 1854. These were the first two out of six executions associated with the Geelong Jail. But who were these two men and what brought them to the bright yellow gallows that had been erected in Great Myers Street on November 9th, 1854? You're listening to Locked Up With History. Now, our first condemned man was John Gunn, who hailed from Inverness in Scotland and was in his 60s at the time of his execution. He was born around 1796 to Alexander Gunn, alias Miniart, and his wife, whose name is unknown. Little is known of his early life until he came to the notice of the courts in 1819 for charges of horse-stealing. Gunn's apprehension was quite exciting when he was recognised boarding a whaling ship headed for Greenland. On his return, he was immediately arrested and held under warrant. At his committal hearing, Gunn feigned madness muttering to himself about Rob Roy, an historical Scottish figure of the Highlands, and the likeness of both of their situations. The courts didn't accept these statements, however, and he was held over to be examined for insanity and whether he was actually fit to stand trial. Gunn was found to be completely sane. Whilst being held to await trial, Gunn managed to escape from the Inverness jail by the means of a small saw and cutting through the cell door. There was a 30-guinea reward offered for his recapture. When he was caught and again brought before the courts, he was found guilty of horse-stealing and escaping prison, earning him a 14-year sentence of transportation to Van Diemen's Land. On being removed to jail to await transportation, he remarked to the officers that he would be conveyed for free to a much better country with plenty of two-penny grog on the voyage. Alcohol problems seemed to be a recurring theme for John Gunn whenever he was in trouble. Gunn arrived in Tasmania aboard the Claudine in December 1821, disembarking with 160 fellow convicts in Hobart. It wasn't long before he was in trouble again for offences such as missing divine service or riding in a cart without a driver or reins. 
There were many simple misdemeanours leading to him being fined, and by 1827 he was working for a man named Hugh Murray. While in his service, he would abscond for three weeks, and on his return was charged with insolence and disobedience. This led to a three-month period on a chain gang. In 1829, he would receive his first sentence of 25 lashes for fighting in a yard and then another month on the chain gang. Gunn received his ticket of leave, but he would then be charged with maliciously wounding with intent to murder against William Bradley. He would be tried but found to be not guilty. However, he was deprived of his ticket of leave and sent to Port Arthur instead. Gunn would eventually receive his pardon by servitude of time in March 1835. By 1839, Gunn was in Melbourne where he'd married his wife Jane at Camberville and they would have several children together. But the marriage was not a happy one, perhaps because of Gunn's erratic behaviour. In the early 1840s, the Gunns were living in Flinders Lane in Melbourne. John found himself on the other side of the Yarra, which in those days the only way to cross was by way of a punt. However, the Yarra was flooded and was too dangerous to cross in the punt keeper's opinion. After Gunn failed to convince the punt keeper to take him across, he stripped off and tied his clothes to his neck before plunging into the Yarra River, swimming all the way to Flinders Lane to the astonishment of all of those who were watching. In 1844, both Gunn and his wife Jane would appear before the courts on a charge of shooting with intent to kill. On Christmas Day 1843, the Gunns and a New Zealand man had an altercation with a neighbour named William Roberts. Gunn told Roberts to go away as he was in a hurry to get to Melbourne when Jane whispered something in his ear. Later reported to be, That's the bloody bastard. Blow his brains out. Gunn turned his gun back towards Roberts and fired, hitting the man and seriously wounding him. Gunn, Jane and the New Zealand friend then all left. At the trial, Gunn, who had initially absconded before he could be arrested, testified he had taken aim at the dog and not the man. There was great discussion over whether Jane could be made to testify against her husband. Ultimately, after a 20-minute deliberation, both John and Jane were found not guilty. The judge, however, had the final word, suggesting that it was better to bring their disputes before the courts to be resolved rather than using a gun. In November 1848, the guns would once again appear in the courts, but this time on opposite sides, their marriage seemingly over. The guns had been separated for some time, and it was thought that Jane was in a relationship with Robert Gotham for the past 18 months. Gunn brought a charge of assault with intent to murder against Robert Gotham, John Blanchard and his wife Jane. It was said that Jane had come to visit the children and had left again. Gunn went after her on horseback, coming across the three with Jane leaning on Gotham's arm. A verbal fight ensued and in Gunn's version, Gotham stabbed his horse and then threatened to kill him. When Gunn also produced a knife, Gotham knocked it out of his hand and stabbed him several times. Jane, on seeing the blood, was said to have urged Gotham to harm him. Jane stated that she had been summoned by Gunn as one of the children was seriously ill. Other witnesses stated that Gunn rode deliberately at Jane with the intent to harm her. Gotham testified that no one other than Gunn had a weapon of any sort. The jury acquitted Gotham, Blanchard and Jane Gunn. Instead, John Gunn found himself charged with willful and corrupt perjury. After 45 minutes, the jury found him not guilty. In January 1849, Gunn would let his jealousies get the better of him when he managed to track down his estranged wife, Jane. 
Jane had found herself accommodations well away from her husband and was earning money by taking in washing. However, Gunn found her. Not satisfied with destroying all her property, then he started to beat Jane about the head with a stick, biting one of her fingers to such an extent that it would later be amputated. And a quirky twist of fate, Jane married Robert Gotham in 1857, just a couple of years after her husband's execution. For a fascinating look at life in a colonial prison, visit Geelong Jail Museum. Situated just over an hour from Melbourne in the heart of Geelong, it's Victoria's most intact and longest continually operating colonial prison. For information, search for Geelong Jail or call 1300 865 800. By 1854, Gunn was living in Warrnambool and was well known around town for his drinking habits. On the 11th of August, he turned up at Charlotte Newman's to collect his washing, rather the worse for drink and in a very bad temper. He left and returned with another man known as Thomas Nolan. The pair then left and returned with Nolan and Samuel Harris, who was also known as Dirty Sam, at around four o'clock in the afternoon. The men started arguing and so Charlotte threw them all out. Gunn then broke one of the windows despite Harris trying to stop him. Gunn left threatening he would return with something that would settle anyone who had interfered with him. He then returned with a pistol and a sword stick. Gunn tried to break down the door, so Harris went outside to calm him down. Within minutes, Harris called out murder and Charlotte and Nolan went outside to him. Harris stated he was a dead man and they noticed the sword stick was gone. Gunn then grabbed Charlotte, threw her to the ground and attempted to stab her, but Nolan grabbed the weapon away from him. Gunn then disappeared, but he was arrested at his home about 200 yards from Mrs Newman's at around 1am the following day, complaining to the police that they needed to arrest someone for murdering him. It was observed that his hands had many cut wounds on them. Samuel Harris died of a puncture wound to his left side, caused by the dagger of the sword stick, which perforated the stomach, the pancreas and the descending aorta, which caused extensive hemorrhaging. The inquest on Samuel Harris found that, after a six-hour deliberation, that Gunn was guilty of willful murder and he was sent to trial at the Geelong Circuit Court on October 28th. The trial had much of the same evidence as the inquest and the jury retired for only 30 minutes before returning a verdict of guilty, but with a recommendation to mercy. Although the jury felt that there was some provocation, they did not believe it was enough to warrant Gunn using such a weapon. John Gunn was sentenced to death, but there was a ray of hope when the Executive Council investigated the previous 1844 case of him shooting with intent. If you'd like to visit some of the places featured on Locked Up With History, book in a tour with Twisted History. For the full range of tours and to book, visit twistedhistory.net.au. Now, our second condemned man was known as George Roberts, but he also went by the name of James Saunders. Now, there is very little information on George Roberts' life prior to August 1854 when he attempted to poison George Kelly with two drachmas of arsenic. Normally, when the newspapers report on an execution, details of the condemned man's previous life would be reported on. However, it is not the case here. 
There is no obvious record of his arrival in the colony, no details of where he was from, his family members or any other details that might give us a clue on finding more information about him. Perhaps George Roberts was an alias and he decided to spare his family of the awful fate that had befallen him. However, what we do know is that Roberts had arrived in the colony approximately six months before and he was about 28 years of age. By the beginning of August 1854, he was employed at Dr Hope's Native Creek Station near present-day Teesdale, just outside of Geelong, between the Barwon and Lee Rivers. Roberts was employed here along with his victim, George Kelly, who was employed as a shepherd. Kelly had a hut two miles from Dr Hope's main homestead. On August 4th, Kelly gave Roberts a cheque for £7 to pass along to John Wilson, the bullock driver, to purchase some items for him in Geelong. When Wilson returned from town, he gave the items and the change to Roberts to give to Kelly. The following Saturday, Kelly confronted Roberts and asked where the balance of the cheque was, a sum of £5, 7 shillings and sixpence. The two men quarrelled over whether the money had already been returned. Kelly told Roberts he would leave a key to his hut so that he could leave the missing money on the table while he was out working. Over the previous few weeks, Kelly had been losing small items of clothing, which he really didn't think that much of, along with a small box containing a quantity of gold. On Sunday, August 11th, Kelly made his breakfast and, when he went out to work, left a quantity of tea in the kettle to drink on his return. While Kelly was out shepherding, Roberts came to the hut with James Bostock, the nine-year-old son of John Bostock, who was a servant to Dr Hope. The boy would later describe in court how Roberts and he had sat down, had a cup of tea, before Roberts rinsed out the remainder of the contents of the kettle, refilling it with fresh, clean water. James then observed Roberts putting some white stuff into the kettle, which he stirred in with his knife. He then placed the kettle on the fire and removed it just before the pair left the hut around dinner time. They had only gone a little way when Roberts remembered he'd left his knife and returned to the hut to collect it. James said he did not know if the substance was flour or poison. George Kelly returned to his hut around 3pm and noticed that his kettle had been emptied of the tea and refilled with what he thought was fresh water. He filled a pannikin with water and drank about a gill, which is approximately about 140 millilitres, and immediately felt a burning in his throat, accompanied by violent pains in his bowels and a severe retching of the stomach. Kelly staggered out of his hut to try and make the two miles to the main homestead, but found he could not. He was found by Wilson, the bullock driver, who rode to the homestead to get an emetic from Dr Hope for Kelly. Kelly, in the meantime, made his way back to his hut. A little while later, Roberts arrived with the emetic from Dr Hope. Kelly asked him what he had done to him, to which Roberts replied, Nothing. Roberts then attempted to mix the emetic into the poisoned water to give to Kelly, but Kelly refused to drink it until he himself had mixed it into some more fresh water. Dr Hope examined Kelly the next day and found that he had a considerable degree of inflammation about the throat and believed that arsenic could have caused it. Kelly suffered for three days and was still not completely cured by the time the trial took place two months later. John Bostock knew where Roberts slept and when Roberts was apprehended, he took a spade to clean out the sleeping area. Under what would have been Roberts' bed, he found a small box containing white powder and a few other parcels of similar substance. Bostock gave these to Mrs Hope to show Dr Hope when he returned home. 
The box would later be identified as the one that had gone missing from Kelly's hut. Trooper Thomas Howlett arrested George Roberts as he headed towards the Lee River. On being told he'd been charged with the poisoning Kelly, he replied, Oh, very well. The trial took place before Justice Williams at the Geelong Circuit Court on October 27, 1854, with Roberts facing two charges. The first, for administering poison, the two drachmas of arsenic, and secondly, for causing George Kelly to have taken it. After testimony from Kelly, John Wilson, James and John Bostock, along with Dr Hope, who had tested the substance found in the kettle, the jury took just 10 minutes to find George Roberts guilty of administering poison with intent to murder. Roberts had conducted his own defence. Now, Justice Williams was quite scathing in his summing up and sentencing, stating, You have been found guilty of the most cowardly and despicable of crimes. Open murder is as nothing to it. Who can save himself from the designs of a man like you, poisoning unseen food and drink? It was a mercy that your victim Kelly was not sent headlong into the presence of his maker. It was not you he had to thank for this. You did what you could do to take his life. You have forfeited your own life in doing so. The jury here has found you guilty of administrating poison with the intent to murder. The jury could not have arrived at no other conclusion. I quite agree with the verdict. Expect no mercy from me. The executive alone is the only authority to which you may now look for mercy. I only have my duty left to me to perform, and I shall. No, I cannot shrink from it. The duty is to declare your life forthwith to the law. The sentence of this court is to you, George Roberts. Be taken from this place whence you came, and there in such a time and place as His Excellency the Lieutenant Governor shall be appointed. Be hanged by the neck until you are dead, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Interested in learning more about this episode? Join the Locked Up With History Facebook group for more facts and discussions about the dark colonial past of Victoria and beyond. Now, both the condemned men were locked up at the Geelong Jail to await the decision of the appeals from the Executive Council, who ultimately decided their fates. Neither of the men would receive any mercy from the Executive Council. The warrant for John Gunn arrived at the Sheriff's Office in Geelong on November 7th, with the execution scheduled for just two days' time. The warrant of execution for George Roberts had arrived on November 4th, but the execution date was held up as there was further investigations by the Executive Council for several men who were also under the sentence of death. It was reported that both Gunn and Roberts behaved with great fortitude between the arrival of the warrants and the day of their death. They paid strict attention to the religious attention from Reverend Love, the Scotch Presbyterian minister, Reverend G. Vance, who was the chaplain of the Geelong Jail, Reverend Sutherland, the Gaelic minister, and Reverend Potter of the Christchurch in Geelong. The night before the executions, Governor Charles Brodie had a final chat with both of the men. George Roberts said he had no hope or desire for anything to be relayed to his family or friends. He thanked Governor Brodie for his kindness while he was at the jail. 
John Gunn, expressed a wish to have his property at Warrnambool divided between his children, and Mr Bateman, one of the trustees, should see to this. Over 2,000 men, women and children had gathered to view the macabre spectacle, much to the disgust of some local journalist. One who described it, as usual on such occasions in other towns, a large concourse of people assembled to feast their depraved appetites on the pleasures of death. And among these were many respectably dressed females and a great many children. Both men slept soundly and enjoyed breakfast before making the final journey just after 8am to a place that would later be known as Gallows Flat, about 200 metres from the front gates of the Geelong Jail. Roberts walked with a firm step while the older gun struggled as was expected for his age. Roberts had confessed to his crime and the justness of his sentence, but Gunn had to be dissuaded from addressing the assembled crowd of his innocence. After five minutes of further talking with the ministers, the bolt was drawn and both men were launched into eternity. The hangman was Jack Harris, who would also later die at Geelong Jail as a prisoner. The area where the gallows was erected continued to be called Gallows Flats for many years afterwards, although no further executions took place there. It is also interesting to note that just two weeks after the deaths of John Gunn and George Roberts, the Act for the Execution of Criminals passed through Parliament. This Act set down the rules surrounding executions and brought them behind the walls of the jail instead of remaining the public spectacle that they were up until this point. It set down the rules of a coroner's inquest on the executed men who needed to attend an execution, amongst others. After receiving royal assent in June 1855, the first execution under these laws was a triple execution at Melbourne Jail. The first private execution in regional Victoria was that of James Ross at Geelong Jail, whose story will be told in an upcoming episode. You're listening to Locked Up With History. Now, before we remove the noose on the story of John Gunn and George Roberts, don't forget to join us over on Facebook with our Locked Up With History group. This is where you can ask me any questions on the current episodes and where I can pop up some photos to go with the podcast if we have them. Or alternatively, you can check out our webpage at www.lockedupwithhistory.com.au where, again, all the previous episodes are along with some photos for the various episodes where we have them. On our next episode, we'll be looking at our first murder story for the series. We'll be looking at the unsolved murder of prostitute Roma Smith in Carlton in 1918, who was found with her throat cut in her bed at Cumberland Place. Who was responsible for her brutal murder? But until then, see you on the darker side of history. information on the story from today's episode check out the show notes or join the locked up with history facebook group remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts